Chakua Enthusiasts Club Podcast. This week, the introduction of E10 fuel and the future of petrol. JECpodcast.com. Hello, welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. You're very welcome along. Wayne Scott with you. And I hope you're well on what is for us here in the UK, NEC Classic Motor Show Week. Yes, it's the big season ender. One of the biggest shows in the world. Certainly the biggest indoor car show in Europe now. And it returns after, of course, its hiatus from 2020 due to the pandemic. And it will be a weekend where some 80,000 people will be travelling up to Birmingham in the Midlands to come and look at the Jaguar Enthusiast Club stand and we'll be no doubt welcoming lots of new Jaguar enthusiasts into the JEC family. But if you're listening to this podcast and you want to join the JEC family, you can find out more about the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, the club that brings you this podcast every week via jec.org.uk. Now this week, lots of detailed information to get across to you because this is an interview that I've been looking forward to getting out there for some time. We'll be talking to a fuels expert, Nigel Elliott, who has spent some 40 plus years in the fuels industry about what we actually need to be worried about and what we need to know about the introduction of ethanol into fuel for our classic Jaguars. Lots of information, so we'll crack on after the return of Hall of Fame with Richard West next. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame returns and we return with one of the leviathans of the business side of motorsport. But he wasn't always involved with the business side. Our Hall of Fame inductee this week started as a mechanic for the legendary Jochen Rint. It is the one and only Ron Dennis, isn't it, Richard? It is indeed, Wayne, uh, and one of my ex-bosses as well, somebody who I have uh, immense uh, respect for when you look at Ron. Not always the easiest man to deal with, but somebody who's achieved remarkable things uh, in his 74 years and deserves all the credit that he gets. Tell us then how it started for Ron. I alluded to the fact that he actually started on the tools, as it were, um, and it began mm. in the late 60s, didn't it, at Cooper? Well, yes, Cooper cars. And, um, you know, you look back at some pictures I found recently, some black and whites of, I think it was at Brands Hatch, and there was a group of guys from Cooper's all standing around, and several of the mechanics had cigarettes on with their sleeves rolled up, and Ron was absolutely immaculate in his pressed overalls with creases down the trousers, because the Ron presentation and excellence is what's driven him throughout his career. And he was back there in 1966 at the age of 18, as you said in the introduction, he worked alongside the lead driver, uh, York and Rint. Um, I think in 68, Rint moved across to Brabham, of course, but he took Ron with him, such was the relationship. And for the 1969 season, Rint moved across to Lotus. But Ron stayed on and I chose instead to work for Sir Jack Brabham, who he had great respect for and spoke of very fondly throughout the time I knew him. Well, of course, in the mid-1970s, we lost Bruce McLaren at an accident in testing at Goodwood. I wonder when Ron Dennis heard of that sad news. He ever imagined that by 1980, he would have arrived at McLaren and would start to build its future? Yeah, if you go back a little bit, and somebody who was a long-standing uh, lieutenant with Ron was Neil Trundle back in 1971, of course. The two of them decided they'd set up their own Formula One team, Rondell Racing, which was the combination, clearly, of you know Ron Dennis and Neil Trundle. Neil actually um, retired, I think, very early this year or late last year from McLaren, and we did an online surprise for Neil. But 
he was hugely loyal to Ron and went through all those early years together. And I think they probably would have done well with Rondell Racing. But of course, what happened was the oil crisis came along. And I believe I'm right in saying they had a potential deal with Mokel. But of course, the oil companies and petroleum companies pulled any form of sponsorship during the oil crisis. And it meant that effectively both of the two of them were out, out of a job. But if you go back into those early days, um, Ron really just pushed harder and harder. And with a series of investors and contacts that he knew well and Neil knew well, they were enjoying uh, success in Formula Two with um, really uh, an immaculate team. Everybody you ever talked to would say, even in those early days, Ron's team was a it was a step above the rest in terms of its presentation and cleanliness. Well, in the early days of the successes of McLaren, of course, they were known for their red and white Marlborough livery. But if you go back to that period in time you've just described, to when he'd reformed and gone to Formula 2 and then later Formula 3, mm. those cars, early cars, were backed very heavily by Marlborough, weren't they? Was that a relationship that he'd taken with him then? Well, it was interesting. The late John Hogan, John or Hoagie, as everybody knew him in the paddock, um, had actually worked for Ron, and um, he was tasked with liaising with Marlborough. And it was really John Hogan and, and Ron who put together the deal that ultimately saw Ron, Ron, uh, Ron with Crichton Brown, Bob Illman, and John Barnard move into the saddle. I'm jumping house ahead of myself a little bit there with McLaren. Ron had a number of um, projects. Three, Project Two, Project Four teams, as they were called. He ran Formula Three cars. He ran Formula Two cars. It was '76 when he actually formed Project Four, and of course was responsible for the entire build of the legendary BMW M1 Pro cars, which raced in a bespoke series, and uh, was where he re-established his links with Nicky Lauda, who was in a Pro car, and subsequently made a comeback and drove for Ron when the McLaren team was reformed around those previous guys I just mentioned. Well, amazingly, in 1981, having only been there a year, he put together a plan to buy out the other shareholders at McLaren, and that was the moment he really took over and made McLaren his own, didn't he? He did, and in those early days, um, Teddy Mayer and the uh, like Tyler Alexander you know, they were obviously part of the old setup and had been working with James Hunt, a number of the mechanics of that era had moved across. But Ron always had an incredibly long-term vision. I remember in 1985 at the Geneva Motor Show, we launched the tag at McLaren Technology Centre. I've still got the press pack for it somewhere in my collection. And I said to Ron, you know, what's that about? He said, oh, well, we, we need an all-encompassing engineering, racing, and high-technology production facility. And of course, many, many, two decades later, he succeeded in doing that in building the McLaren F1 Technology Centre at Woking. So it was that long-term vision that Ron always had. And, and a very ruthless streak. I mean, I say that with great respect because he, he worked incredibly hard and I'm sure still does with his private interests and put in many, many hours. And it was all about success. And if that meant, you know, along the way being ruthless with people or situations, he was very capable of doing that. But he was also, and I believe still is, a very generous man. He Certainly when my first son was born and was very poorly, he was incredibly supportive then of my then wife and Christian who's and he's 30. So a great guy in that respect too, but never one to lift his focus for a minute. He was always focused on success. And obviously he's a great uh, ambassador for the sport. He's one of the, the big faces and big names of motorsport. But we're talking about him because, as you alluded to there, you have personal experience of working with Ron Dennis from your time at McLaren. So tell us mm. the story of how you arrived there and how that relationship began. 
Back in uh, late 83, I'd met Stefan Johansson in London, who at that time was um, driving a Honda-powered Spirit F1 car. And, and I was helping Stefan kit, kit out uh, a Mercedes road car that he had with Lorenzo and body kits and all the things that used to happen in the 80s. And he said to me, you know, you should really be working in F1. And I wrote to a number of the teams and heard nothing back. But Sheridan Finn, Frank Williams' commercial guy, contacted me in the November of 83 and set up an interview for me just prior to Christmas when I met Frank and he offered me a job as assistant sponsorship coordinator. I started in the January of 84, went immediately went racing straight to Rio and the other circuits, Dijon, places like that. And on the way to uh, America for the Detroit Dallas uh, weekends of the 84 season, I was approached by a McLaren guy called Ben Horn, who informed me that Ron's right-hand commercial guy from Sami, who latterly became a colleague and a, and a good friend, had gone to work with Roy Winkleman in the States on his IndyCar, Lotus IndyCar project, and that perhaps I should talk to Ron. Well, hugely ambitious. Um, I went and saw Ron in Detroit. We met in his suite after qualifying on the Saturday. We talked at some length, and he offered me a job with the proviso that, you know, I had to go back to Frank and be very clear that it was my decision to leave it, that Ron hadn't had had not headhunted me because Ron and Frank always had a, a very close relationship and technically and commercially. And of course, they didn't want a young upstart like me upsetting the apple cart. So I explained to Frank, he was a bit disappointed to say the least, but he was gracious about it. And the very uh, last race I did for Williams was Dallas. And uh, I remember it very well because both Lauder and Prost and the McLarens went into the wall and suffered failures. And Keke Rosberg in a Williams won the race and I remember seeing Frank on the way to the airport and he smiled and winked and said, you sure it's not too late to change your mind? <laughs> but I'd already accepted the job with Ron as sponsorship coordinator. And it took me into a completely new world. Um, he, he's a very trusting individual. He gives you a lot of rope, a bit like Tom Walkinshaw, who we've talked about many times. And I worked alongside the legendary Joe Ramirez, the Mexican Joe Ramirez, Liz Wood, who was our travel person. And literally, we had a tiny office next to Ron's at the top of the stairs. And down below us was John Barnard and his team, of course, John having penned the very successful McLaren all-carbon composite MP41. And um, there, was, there, was always, <laughs> there was always plenty going on between Ron and John because John was the perfectionist in terms of design and managing the relationship with Porsche, who at that time were providing our V6 turbo engines. And uh, Ron, who was responsible for running the company day to day, and of course, the commercial relationships of which he excelled. And uh, when you heard JB coming up the stairs in a rush, you always knew there was going to be excitement in the office next door. <laughs> but that volatile relationship the two of them had was, was very much due to the enormous success that they had in the 80s. And then eventually John left and into the 90s and even Le Mans projects and things like that with the road cars. So a really interesting character, complex, uh, attention to detail and focus, three things with Ron that you, if you could deal with those things, you were very, very proud to wear the red and white uniform, one of which I still have, but sadly I've got no chance of fitting into it anymore. <laughs> and of course, talking of conflict, you can't talk about Ron Dennis in the 1980s without mentioning that crazy golden but slightly tense period in Formula One history of the late 80s and McLaren with the Senna and Prost era. And in particular, there was a real problem between Ron Dennis and Alain Prost, wasn't there? 
Well, it was an in, it was a very interesting period because in '87 Frank was obviously recovering from you know that terrible car crash that a car crash that left him that left him paralysed with Patrick Head not only having to run the technical side of Williams but also run the business, uh, and Ron you know never one to be shy stepping forward had had many discussions with Honda and in the Monza race of '87 with with Alain Prost and Ayrton Senna standing next to him he announced that he'd effectively negotiated the engine away from Williams and it would be in the back of a McLaren for the 88 season with Ayrton and Alain. Um, it was a tense relationship from the start because Alain at that time you know clearly was the the leading protagonist and he'd had many battles with Nelson Piquet. Senna was the up-and-coming young driver who'd won races in the yellow and blue Camel Lotus. But when the two of them came together, with this incredible... It was one of the things where, you know, all the stars aligned. The engine, the, the car, the Steve Nichols, Gordon Murray car, was absolutely outstanding. The Honda engine was incredible. We had big money from Marlborough and from Shell and from our other sponsors. And, of course, then we had the two greatest drivers in the world going head-to-head. But it was really the Monaco weekend when Ayrton was over a second quicker than Alain around that circuit when the mind game started. And for everybody in the team, it was then a, a joyous place to be in terms of winning and being so successful. But occasionally at weekends, it could be very stressful as well because we got to the point where Alan wouldn't leave the briefing because Ayrton still wanted to talk and Ayrton wouldn't talk openly in front of Alan. And uh, it, it became a real game of minds. And commercially, it could be difficult on occasions because towards the end, you know, Alan wouldn't go and do an event if Ayrton wasn't there or vice versa because the other one believed that the other one was back at the track talking to the engineers again. <laughs> so we, we, uh, we had to keep a lot of balls in the air. And sadly, it was Monza where we got punted off by Alan. Somewhat, I think, you know, as, as a means of almost saying, there you go, you can't win them all. Jean-Louis Slesser, the sports car driver, had been drafted into a Williams to replace, um, I think, um, was it Mansell or Brundle? I can't remember. Uh, Slesser had been drafted in. And, of course, he tangled with Ayrton on one of the laps at the chicane. And the, the MP44 got wedged on the, on the curbing. And although there was nothing wrong with the car, we had to retire. So that cost us a clean sweep of 16 out of 16 races. And I will never forget at the end of the year, Ron's face, when we we just didn't quite take the 16 out of 16. But it was a great achievement. And Ron did mastermind some remarkable politics during that period in keeping the team very much together and also keeping the distance between Alan and Ayrton so it didn't affect their on-track performances. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, as you mentioned there, he was a complex character. On the one hand, a very cool, calculating almost cold businessman but on the other he took his motorsport really personally and you got the sense of that when Alain Prost virtually ditched McLaren and went to Ferrari there was that moment wasn't there when basically Ron Dennis threw the trophy at him and you got the sense that even in public he'd taken it personally yeah I think that's fair. that's a fair reflection of his character um you know, all of the people I've known over the years that I stay in contact with, the McLarenistas or, you know, the, the, the class. We, we have a very large group of the McLaren old boys and girls, you know, which is a huge collection of people who've worked for McLaren over the years. And we all feel the same way. You know, we were all very, very, very privileged to work for Ron. And for the rest of the team, John Barnard, Bob Illman, Crichton Brown, who sadly is no longer with us. And you just felt very special working for the team, but you were under no illusions. You know, as long as you were a hundred percent committed to Ron, he was a hundred percent committed to you. But if you, if you wavered, it, he could be, you know, quite strong and quite sure. Well, very strong and very sharp. 
And that sometimes people say, you know, you always enter McLaren by the front door, but you always leave by the back, <laughs> which is, is a little bit unfair because those of us who worked with him were in a very, very privileged time throughout our careers. You know, whilst Bruce founded the team, Ron Dennis made McLaren, and so many people that you talk to, the old guard, still speak with very, you know, favoured terms. I have to say, for a 74-year-old guy, he still looks incredibly fit, and I'm sure as focused as he always was. But he did a thing which was outstanding. When he when he finally decided his time was up at McLaren, he sent an invite out to every person who had worked for the company from the day he took over until the day he left. And he hired the Albert Hall and he bussed everybody in and he invited us all. And some three and a half thousand people at his expense went to the Albert Hall. We saw a private um, show of the Circus Soleil, uh, Circus Soleil, which was absolutely incredible. And then I think about 350 of us were invited to an after party that went on into the wee hours of the morning. And at that point, Ron walked away from Formula One and, and motorsport. And he moved on to the next chapter because he's got this capability to always look forward. And that's why even now, despite being an incredibly wealthy man, he's still, I understand, very, very busy and uh, extremely you know, in demand from a number of sources at very high levels in international business. Super Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Joining me is the automotive fuel specialist for the Federation of British Historic Vehicle Clubs, Nigel Elliott. Hi, Nigel. Hi, Wayne. Good to talk to you. Uh, it's great to have you on because there has been so much hype and hysteria over the introduction of E10, hasn't there? And hopefully we can try and uh, debunk some of the myths that have been uh, put around in the media. Um, but firstly, give us a bit of background on how you got into fuels and the experience that you have. Wow, OK. Um, yeah, I guess I have about 44 years experience now um, in the oil industry. Um, I, I joined when um, I joined when I was 21. Joined Esso, Esso Petroleum Company in the UK. Joined their engine laboratory um, at um, at Milton Hill near Abingdon, and um, worked there till 2020. But during that time, I um, uh, was heavily involved in uh, engine testing, both lubricant and fuels testing. And I was very lucky to um, be able to work for some of the um, uh, most experienced scientists on fuel quality um, that were around and that have written many of the textbooks that we use today. So um, after the engine lab, I then moved on to um, the fuels division, um, looking at hardware interactions with fuel quality and eventually became the um, what we call the distillate team leader, which is the diesel area and looked after diesel fuel quality. So uh, was heavily involved in the SO Diesel 2000 launches um, uh, during that period of time. And um, really large investigative program looking at fuel additives as well to see what actually worked and what didn't work uh, before um, the research centre finally was shut down as we merged with uh, with mobile. Um, that merger with mobile led to the facility being moved to the US, and um, uh, I then ended up as a as a fuels expert in Europe, looking after the UK and Ireland initially, and then um, uh, Europe as the refining product quality advisor looking after um, nine refineries at that time, looking at their fuel product quality and implementing the product quality systems. 
Um, and then after that, I became the senior fuels technical expert for ExxonMobil um, research and engineering in Europe. So heavily involved with industry activity. Um, I chaired the diesel group in Europe um, for the fuel specification and was an expert in the um, uh, gasoline or petrol area as well for many, many years. Uh, you're a Triumph man, and I know that you race your uh, TR as well. Yeah, that's right. I hill climb a, a, a TR7 V8, um, and um, well, <laughs> I'm in the process of building another one, having heavily uh, crashed this one, my, my other one last year, a big end-over-end roll at Loughton uh, Park. But yes, it's a heavily modified TR7 V8, 4.6 litre twin turbo, forged pistons, completely stripped out on big wide slicks. So um, it's quite a hairy beast. It's um, it's known in the hill climb community as wild thing um, <laughs> because it spends quite a lot of its time sideways. And with a 4.6 V8, I think that alone qualifies you to know everything there is to know about buying fuel. So <laughs> it's a good insight from both ends, really. But um, let's just bring ourselves up to date with where we are now. So we are two or three months now into the introduction of E10, the first of the E10 uh, petrol pump started appearing on four courts back in august of course the uh, government's date for rollout was the first of september and it all went as planned we had the labeling in place before it arrived remind us then of why e10 is here why it's important and why they bothered doing it in the first place okay it's here basically to to make a co2 saving and what we're talking about here is the, this is bioethanol that's being blended, so it's um, it, it's made from renewable sources um, and by fermentation. And so, what we're talking about here is, is something that will not be a net contributor to CO two. So it will uh, uh, absorb um, CO two during the growth, and then obviously when it's burnt in the vehicle, um, it produces CO two again. But you just have a, a life cycle. That means you're not contributing um, to global CO2 emissions. And that's the key to understand, isn't it? This is about things being grown in fields to create a constituent part of our fuel rather than being dug up from deep underground. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I always say that um, crude oil is actually renewable, but unfortunately, it takes many millions of years. <laughs> yes. um, because, it, And it is a natural product. I think that's something else that people ought to realise is, you know, it's not something alien that's been invented by the oil industry. It's formed naturally in the ground. And it's, you know, yeah, it's made of it's hydrocarbons, basically, which is what we're all made out of. The next bit of the debate, of course, when it comes to E10 is the known issues around um, increased fuel consumption. Now, uh, this has been reported quite heavily in the press. Do you feel that that's undermining that original mission of the government's then to reduce uh, carbon output in the sense that whilst E10 is achieving those goals in its manufacturing stage, the fact that we have to use more of it might undermine that. Um, it's a very small amount, really, in the big scheme of things. Yes, there is a there is a, there is a debit, um, and uh, but re but remember, from batch to batch of ordinary petrol, you will see fuel um, consumption differences if you measure it very very precisely, because the the um, the hydrogen carbon balance does does change slightly, you know, depending on the crews you're running and and how the refinery is operating. Um, also, there were, uh, there were other oxygenated blend components already used in, in petrol. So these were things like MTBE, which is an ether, and ETBE, this is um, uh, another ether. 
And those two blend components are high octane, um, but they also bring a significant amount of oxygen around. So it, it's you would have to go back and compare with a straight petrol with none of these oxygenates in. And the, you know, the debit is around about 2.6% or so um, for, um, for running on, the, on, on E10. And of course, the government said that this was equivalent to taking something like uh, three quarters of a million cars off the roads instantly. Um, that figure has since been uh, questioned by scientists, I know. But uh, ultimately, what we need to know as historic vehicle uh, enthusiasts is that it is making steps towards the mission that we all have to be a part of, and that is reducing carbon output uh, as a country and as a society so that's the reasoning behind it on the ground remind us of how we can spot e10 at the petrol pumps okay it's um it's very clear it's the 95 grade with a big e10 sticker on the pump um it is labeled up with war- with warning labels um the the super grade of course will be labeled with the e5 um designation and also you'll you'll become familiar to see on diesel pumps b7 so but the ethanol uh, the e10 pump will be e10 and and that means that the ethanol content is um somewhere between 5.5 and 10 percent by volume and the the e5 will be between zero and five percent okay it's quite possible then that some of the e5 fuel has no ethanol in it at all yeah, that's right, and um, and in fact, there are the um, there, there is one producer, Esso, um, for all their super um, material that's produced down at the Forley refinery and sent through their pipeline system is E zero, um, and they have indicated they'll continue doing that unless legislation forces them to blend ethanol. Okay, so that's uh, that's the. Esso Synergy Supreme plus 99, I think they call it, don't they, on their Yeah, courts? they do. And, and that goes to all sort of major locations, uh, such as Avonmouth in the um, in, in the southwest. Um, it's available from Hythe, close to Southampton, um, uh, down south at um, Gatwick, um, West London, um, uh, Heathrow, and Perfleet to the east of London, and also at Birmingham. So the pipeline runs all the way up to Erdington in Birmingham, and, and the, the distribution area is quite significant around there. So there are good, good sort of major population areas of the country that are covered by E0. If you take a look at their, the website, they do give some indication where, um, uh, where it's not available, and then it will be uh, up to E5. Okay, so uh, yeah, worth a look at that then. That's so.co.uk, uh, and they have a special uh, fuels information and locator uh, page on their website there. So uh, definitely worth a look. The links to all of these, by the way, uh, can be found on the FBHVC website at fbhvc.co.uk forward slash fuels. And all of the links, the relevant pages on all of the different fuel manufacturers' websites are there for you. So uh, that's your Bible, really. There's also a printable leaflet for club members on there as well for you to download so uh, do go and have a look at that as you're listening to this podcast and of course talking of the fbhvc the whole reason why we're able to talk about distinguishing between e5 and e10 
at the pumps was because several years ago when this came up for consultation, uh, the government came to the FBHVC and asked for our response to that consultation. A period of work then uh, was undertaken to find out exactly what the effects of ethanol would be on the historic vehicle community. And the FBHVC campaigned and lobbied government very hard to ensure that E5, what would later become a protection grade, as they announced it, was not only available, but enshrined in legislation to make sure that it's available. And that legislation is valid for the next five years, isn't it, Nigel? Yes, that's correct. And they have indicated that if there is no alternative around after five years, there is a strong possibility that they will continue to um, promote the E5 grade. So we are protected from that point of view, but how worried do we need to be? So let's look at some of the problems that ethanol causes for historic vehicles. Now, if you would read the press, you'd have got all very scared about all sorts of potential problems from cars self-combusting on the hard shoulder uh, right the way through to things rotting and falling apart. So let's get through the myths and let's look at the real facts of what problems this produces for your average historic vehicle Nigel okay well there, there are three main areas um, the um, the first one is materials compatibility so here we're talking about the the elastomers so these are flexible pipes seals etc and um, some components such as plastic floats in carburetor bowls etc and, and filter housings so the um, uh, that's that's one of the one of the key areas the other one is corrosion um, the ethanol is um, uh, slightly acidic and, and quite conductive. And so in the presence of water, um, it can form a corrosive mixture that, um, which will promote particularly galvanic corrosion. So where you have dissimilar metals, so perhaps brass and, um, and uh, a zinc die cast carburetor housing, et cetera, or, or aluminium, um, you will get some um, corrosion um, if, there, if, the fuel is, uh, if the fuel is wet. Um, and the other area is because the um, the ethanol contains just under 35% um, oxygen by weight, um, there is quite a bit of enleanment with E10. So um, it will um, lean out the mixture of the vehicle, but that can be adjusted and corrected for. So ultimately then, it gets really dangerous if it comes into contact with water in the system in some way. Yeah, absolutely. The key here is have a fuel system that's in good condition that prevents any any water ingress. Um, tanks will breathe normally, and obviously with natural humidity, there will be a, a slight pickup of water all the time. And because ethanol is um, hygroscopic, it will um, it will uh, absorb the water. Um, but in normal cases, at this sort of kind of tank breathing level, um, that will just be absorbed by the ethanol. Um, there won't be a problem with it. It will be burned uh, in the engine. And, um, and you, you know, basically it will dry out the fuel system and uh, it sh there shouldn't be any problems. The problems generally occur when there's some additional contamination. And, and at that point, you can get something called phase separation. If you get more than about two and a half thousand parts per million, so um, uh, we're talking about 0.25% um, of water in, in petrol, then depending on the ambient temperature, um, it will phase separate. So the ethanol will partition to the water and leave, uh, leave behind a lower octane petrol in the tank. And obviously you'll have a fairly corrosive water ethanol mixture in the bottom of the tank. So that's what you've really got to avoid. So under normal circumstances with a well-maintained system, um, regular fuel put, throughput of fuel, um, it will remain dry and it will be okay. 
So practically speaking, what we're really saying is, firstly, use your classic cars more uh, because that stops the fuel being stood around for a long time and then corroding uh, fuel tanks and other fuel system components. Uh, but also, there are other practical things, I guess, we can do to protect cars if they are hibernating for the winter. Things like leaving a fuel t full tank of fuel in there so that you don't get condensation buildup, etc. Yeah, that, that's true. And, and there have been many debates and over many years, lots of questions about laying up cars and what's the ideal thing to do. I think what I've tended to say is that try and keep the tank at least two thirds full. Um, uh, obviously, exposure to, to air can promote oxidation and obviously water ingress from, from humidity changes. Um, but also the danger is with a completely full tank that um, you then when you come to um, to start the vehicle after the layup that you've lost some of the lighter ends of the fuel they've evaporated and you'll have some trouble getting the vehicle going. So it's always handy to leave a bit of space in the tank so you can splash in a bit of new fuel just to um, just to increase the volatility and help that cold starting. And at this point, I guess it's worth talking about additives. There are lots on the market available. Um, we as the FBHVC did some research into these many years ago and generally found that whilst they don't help the incompatibility issues with things like old rubber hoses and things like that, they were quite effective in dealing with some of these problems with hygroscopic ethanol rotting out fuel tanks, etc. So are they worth the investment? Um, yes, they are, I think. It does just give you that bit of extra protection um the um the corrosion inhibitors in them do 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 work pretty well um and um, can protect the system under extreme um, circumstances of course it's important to remember as well that corrosion inhibitors are actually recommended in the ethanol the automotive ethanol standard and remember that the actual fuel fuel producers and blenders um, have steel tanks with the ethanol in so they, um, they uh, have an interest in making sure that the ethanol they're using um, does have corrosion inhibitors in it and is also kept very dry. But um, certainly, you know, the extra addition is well worth doing. It's a good point, that. Do you think supermarkets in particular that have been known for the odd uh, leaky tank and their forecourts are going to have to sharpen their pencils and make sure their fuel tanks are better maintained in the future because of this? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, in, in general, um, service stations are pretty good these days. And um, the constant throughput of E10 will also make sure that things are kept pretty dry anyway. Um, it's only if there is a problem with, a, you know, um, a local floods, a leaking man lid on the service station tank. And generally, when that happens, you stop a lot of vehicles very quickly. And so it's pretty obvious what's happened. Um, and it's usually remediated pretty quickly as well. So, you know, you don't see it happen that often. It, it can still happen, but it's pretty rare these days. Mm -hmm. In terms then of the compatibility with rubber hoses, and I think this is the thing that has caused most people the panic. Uh, they've seen the stories of hoses perishing, dissolving, spraying fuel all over engine bays, the potential of fires, etc. But... It's not all lost because there are actually hose kits out there starting to come on the market that can replace those old hoses with new hoses that are compatible with ethanol. So what are we looking for there? How do we buy them? What material is it? Give us an insight into those. Okay, well, the best thing to do actually is um, um, the, there are some SAE standards on ethanol um, proof hose and um, a number of companies uh, supplying that. If you just Google it, actually, there's a wide range out there 
um, um, showing um, ethanol proof hose. Obviously, all modern hose now um, tends to be um, ethanol compatible, and will have the and, and good quality hose will have the relevant SAE numbers on it. Um, there were a wide range of these, so I won't get into quoting, quoting the numbers um, today, but perhaps that's maybe something that we could um, uh, add to the Federation website in the future. Um, I think that would be, be a good addition. But um, uh, there are a number of suppliers out there of classic vehicles now actually providing um, uh, hose kits, as you indicate. So this is not a big deal. I mean, there's generally not that much flexible hose on a vehicle and it's fairly short length, typically. I can hear the owners of slightly more modern classics now drumming the table saying, yeah, what about my fuel injection systems, the rubber seals in my injectors, uh, things like that? I would be expecting to see things like that be easy to manufacture? Um, well, um, I think I think generally, with the, 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 if you like the... Uh, the jury's still out on some of this at the moment. Um, I've been talking to um, to Bosch in Germany. I have a contact there through through my industry work, and he's spoken to their old what they call their old timer expert. And uh, and what they've said is, well, look, these original systems like you know Jetronic systems and some of the early L Jetronics and D Jetronic systems um, uh, were never validated on on higher levels of ethanol. Um, but so far, they've not seen any problems. And remember, the United States has had E10 for, for many, many years. And um, if you look there, there are no widespread um, reports of problems with these historic injection systems. So I think that they're generally, they're, they are generally robust to, uh, to E10. And um, uh, apart from the hoses, of course. Um, the fuel, the fuel pumps and systems have been um, have been um, validated on the more modern vehicles, and the, a lot of the fuel pump designs are very similar to the older designs. So, um, not seeing any um, big issues in that area at the moment. Older systems like SU carburettors are already being well served with uh, kits from the likes of Berlin and people like that that are already supplying things like plastic floats that are ethanol proof, but. The speed at which this corrosion happens is quite slow, isn't it? Because, you yeah. know, ultimately, I've seen some reports, especially on social media, I filled up with E10 by accident, I got 100 yards down the road and the car conked out. It's outrageous. Well, we can tell those people that that wasn't the E10, that was something else wrong with your car, because it just isn't that dramatic, is it? No, absolutely not. And certainly the odd, the odd fill of E10 is not going to cause any harm. Um, it's a it's a longer term effect. I mean, the, in terms of elastomers, flexible hoses, um, the ethanol is a small molecule, and it takes time for it to leach into the hose and and damage its structure. So, literally, one tank full isn't going to cause a, isn't going to cause a problem. Um, if you've got incompatible hose and you repeatedly use it, then yes, over time you'll start to see some deterioration, perhaps some sweating of the hose. Um, typically, you see it also start to swell. But, um, you know, you need to be careful with older vehicles anyway with petrol-based case because um, aromatic contents in base petrol have increased over the years and um, the aromatic content of, um, of petrol will tend to get into elastomers and make them swell. So you do see a little bit of, um, of fuel pipe swelling base case anyway, but the fuel pipe materials and uh, the newer ones are obviously tolerant of this, but older ones may not be. So, you know, there's a double reason really for changing. It's not just ethanol. And this is the point, isn't it? 
fuels, especially if you've got a really early, maybe even a pre-war car, uh, fuels are completely different to what they would have been like when that car was produced, say, in 1935 or whatever. And over the years, there has been a complete evolution in fuels. It is not like this has turned the tap off. Of course, it's not that long ago in the grand scheme of things that we saw lead removed from fuel and everyone thought that would be the death of the classic car world. And of course, it wasn't. We adapted as we'll adapt this time. Um, but I guess the point that we're making here is that if you fill up with E10 at the petrol pumps, don't panic. Go out, use the car, and at the next best opportunity, just fill up with E5 when you can. Yeah, exactly, and um, and you and you won't have any problems. So if you do, you know, if you do have to do the what I call the distressed purchase when you've got to buy some E10 because there's nothing else available, don't worry about it. Do exactly as you've said, and um, you shouldn't see any problems at all. And there's a car maintenance aspect to this. I do know there are some owners out there in the world that are very proud of the fact that their car still runs around on the very same tyres it came out the factory with in 1960 and the very same fuel lines it came out the factory with uh, 50 years ago. But that's really not how we can run historic vehicles anymore, is it? No, I think we, we have to recognise that we've got, to, we've got to move with the times here. Um, but the, the modifications we have to make are, are pretty small in terms of the overall vehicle. And it can be done quite discreetly, so to pre preserve the original patina, if you like. Um, so I think, um, I think that's something that we should just accept. Um, looking around at the, uh, at the European um, uh, oil industry, um, you know, they are making it very clear that they are going to be pushing from, you know, they'll, they'll want the fuels to be, have a better um, environmental um, uh, stamp, if you like. And they'll be doing that by obviously things like ethanol blending, more renewable content, etc. So, um, you know, we have to move with this if you're going to keep liquid fuels um, out there and uh, classic vehicles working. Absolutely. We face a lot of challenges as a movement to ensure that we not only are allowed to use our vehicles unhindered, but that we have a fuel supply that is there, that is available, that is affordable and ultimately isn't damaging the environment uh, if there's anything we can do about it. And to me... This may be a controversial statement to some, but to me, if all that means is we have to put up with some adaptations to have 10% of ethanol in fuels, that seems like fair cop to me. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. I think we just need to face up to this and get on with it. It's not insurmountable. We can do it. Obviously, the new vehicles are compatible. Yeah, there's a few challenges, but we can make this work. And um, it's, you know, if look at the United States. There are a lot of classic vehicles running there without any problems you know i've got old exxon colleagues that are running you know tr3s and things on on on, on e10 without any problem at all and of course there are other problems that we've had existing from fuel in our cars for a long time there are elements of leaded fuel that came out with the lead or have been added since then that have caused things like corrosion of brass components in carburettors there were other problems we were dealing with before e10 came along weren't there Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, um, a lot of my product quality work within within Exxon Mobil has been making sure that the uh, that fuel qualities um, you know are are good. And from time to time, you did come across problems, you know, that caused um, deposits perhaps in you know that stuck valves, or it could be um, um, sticky deposits that cause injectors to stick, or you know. Um, carburetors to have problems i mean there's a lot lot going on in in, in petrol base case 
Absolutely, and of course, uh, we're very used to, in older vehicles, hardened valve seats uh, on the exhaust side of cylinder heads now to ensure that we can run leaded uh, designed engines uh, on unleaded. So uh, it, we're talking about modifications that are nowhere near as extreme as the things that we've already done to adapt. So um, in that sense, it's uh, it's easier than it has been in the past. But one of the things that has seemed to have come through since the introduction of E10 and the hunt for everyone uh, looking for E5 in four courts and i think this has not been helped by the fact that shortly after e10 arrived we had a fuel crisis in the uk uh, is the fact that whilst e5 supply is enshrined in legislation there are reports in certain parts of the country that it's not quite as easy to obtain as people might have expected. What have you seen and, and what's your view on that going forward? Uh, we, we, we have seen that and particularly some of the small country service stations that only have a petrol and a diesel tank. There's not much they can do and there is no, there is no requirement for them to um, uh, have the, uh, the protection grade available. It's generally focused where um, a, a service station has marketed two grades of fuel uh, two grades of petrol prior to the um, uh, introduction of E10, where they've been obligated to carry on doing it. Um, of course, the service station itself has, you know, and, and the company that runs the service station, and, and usually they run quite a lot of service stations, they have to make their decisions and it's a, you know, they're, they're, they're free really to do this. And, um, and so we're, we're in their hands to some extent. But what we can do is we can help it by making the grade popular. Now the super grades um, were already um, um, used a lot by the performance uh, car owners, and certainly, you know, if you have if you have a Porsche, it's recommended in the handbook to be running the super grade, and uh, many do. I think there, there are sort of the, they're the sort of the key users here. We've got the performance cars and we've got the classic cars. So the performance car uh, folk will continue to use super wherever they can get it. And it's important that we, as the classic car fraternity, do the same thing. And that way, if it's a popular grade and um, it remains profitable for the companies, then they'll continue to make it. And it is more expensive than your standard unleaded. Uh, but that is because not necessarily that they're trying to tax us as older vehicle owners, but it's because it is just a better quality fuel with more additives in, so it costs the manufacturers more to produce, doesn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, the key thing is the, the octane. Um, the increased octane costs money. Octane is, 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 uh, is expensive. And so um, that, that adds to the production cost. The other thing is that it's not made in huge volumes. You know, if you in, in, in my day at Esso, they would make a they would make a large refinery tank every day of um, of unleaded ninety five, and once a month they would make a tank of super. So that puts it kind of into perspective. You know, quite quite um, a, a big difference in the volumes of the manufactured, and you've got to move it around, ship it. You've got to do all the product quality on it. Um, during the year, there are various seasonal changeover points where the quality of the fuel, the volatility has to be adjusted. And um, you've got to make sure that the fuel in the service stations meets the legal requirements on volatility. So, you know, managing all that um, for, a, for a low volume, low throughput fuel is costly. Do you think this is going to be an increasing problem over the next five years that gradually we'll see less super unleaded or do you think this is just a temporary sort of teething problem in getting the balance right between e10 and e5 supply 
Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that um, the the uh, the major suppliers will continue to provide this the, the super grade. Um, we um, we may see some erosion in 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 some of the more far flung areas of, of the country or where there are only very small service stations. But generally, most most major towns and cities should should have plenty of E five available. And ultimately, as you say, it's down to popularity and the amount that forecourts are able to shift to this stuff. And actually, if by five years' time, everyone's fitted ethanol-proof hoses and fuel systems into their car, they've come onto the market for most vehicles, you may well see demand drop in turn. Yeah, absolutely. And we certainly saw that with the lead replacement petrol, if you remember. Um, the, um, initially, there was, there was high demand for it. Um, but once people actually modified their vehicles or, or just um, decided to carry on and run, run on, the, um, uh, on the unleaded material um, and found actually under most conditions they didn't really have any problems, then the sales of lead replacement petrol just vanished. A lot of the cars we're talking about here, a lot of the listeners to this podcast, they probably only cover one, 2,000 miles a year. The FBHVC survey results showed that the average historic vehicle driver drives between 1200 and 1500 miles a year so there's not a lot of usage of these vehicles so it's going to take a long time for effects to be seen apart from those that we covered earlier on storage and and um, hibernation of cars in garages yeah absolutely but i guess there's one thing that we should remember is super's been around for quite a while as a grade yeah and it's um it was there before we got into all the, the ethanol blending and so, you know, it's been viewed as a viable grade um, for, for many years. So I do hope that it will continue even just on the basis of performance vehicles. Mm, absolutely. Well, we should touch on the other issue that has been seen with E10, and that is, of course, the enleanment of fuel systems. Now, more modern vehicles that are running uh, electronic fuel injection here with Lambda sensors uh, and other sensors that control the air-fuel ratio, they're not going to have a problem with that. Your ECU will automatically adapt. But uh, on the older vehicles, there might just have to be some tuning of carburettors going on here or some adaptations of metering units on perhaps the old mechanical fuel injection systems. Yeah, absolutely. There will have to be some some small adjustment just to, to take account of that. Um, um, but um, quite often, actually, you'll find a small bit of enleanment probably um, won't won't hurt, and many vehicles may be running a bit rich anyway. So it's not it's not necessary that it's necessarily true that you'll notice it. Um, if you're if you've got the vehicle set right where it should be, then okay, you might feel a few stumbles and hesitations, and and need to uh, uh, richen it up a bit to uh, to correct the ethanol enleanment, but it's uh, it will be interesting to see how people adapt to that. But it, the systems can be adjusted. There is a way to do it, um, whether it be a metering flat tweak on a on an injection system, um, or a, or a carburetor um, you know, jet adjustment. That's really what we're talking about. Yeah, I have to say, I've been running E10 in my car for uh, a number of months now, uh, since it was very first available at the beginning of August, actually, in my area of the world. And uh, I have to admit, my car runs better on it. So I suspect she was running a little bit rich to begin with and actually really enjoys a good tank of E10. And for my vehicle, stainless steel fuel tank, uh, I've changed all of the fuel hoses. I've not seen any issues at all. So uh, hopefully, 
hopefully I'll be continuing to report trouble-free motoring well into the future. But an example really of the fact that it is possible and with a few adaptations, as we've said, we can get around this problem. As we look forward to the future then, Nigel, there are bigger questions around fuel. Of course, uh, whilst we're not talking about vehicles that are necessarily used here for everyday transport, sometimes they are, sometimes they're in regular use. But ultimately, the fuel supply is governed by demand in the wider market and demand for daily daily drivers, vehicles that are used for commuting. Um, so as the electric revolution takes hold... Looking into our crystal balls for a moment, what do we think are the viable solutions for historic vehicles 20, 30, even 50 years from now? We've seen all sorts of stories about hydrogen compatibility, even synthetic fuels. Where do we go from here for the future, do you think? Well, I think that um, in the in the next um, 20 years, I think we're still going to see pretty good availability of, of, of petrol. Um, and um, the, the main thing here is that jet fuel, you know, that there is not really a viable alternative at the moment for jet fuel. Um, you, I think um, the European Oil Industry Association, Tactical Association uh, called Concali, have done some predictions and they, they say probably by 2030, the maximum amount of aviation fuel that could be renewable would be about 5%. Um, and so if you're making kerosene, you're making um, petrol, you're making diesel and other fuels. Um, there is also a massive demand for chemicals and solvents that all come from crude oil. And there are not any obvious immediate replacements um, in the volumes that are required. So I think there will still be a um, refining industry producing fuels. Um, yes, they will change. And um, certainly synthetic fuels are being looked at um, and, you know, with a view to using carbon capture and um, uh, hydrogen from uh, electrolysis. So uh, these fuels can be made, the technology's there. Um, they're very expensive, however, and, um, and they require a lot of uh, renewable electricity. So they're sort of the main limitations. But as time moves on and more renewable electricity is available, then they may become more viable. But um, there are certain situations where liquid fuels are really the only answer. It's very difficult to get the energy density with anything else. Um, and um, hydrogen is, is, is just another means of storing energy. Um, the production process from electrolysis is about 60% efficient. So you're wasting a, quite a lot of energy when you're, when you're manufacturing hydrogen. Um, and so you need to be careful where you actually use it. You would only use it where there was no viable alternative. So certainly, uh, I don't think using hydrogen to, uh, to run domestic gas boilers is a particularly smart thing to do. If you're already generating lots of renewable electricity, you might as well move people over to use electricity for heating their homes if you can do it at a reasonable price. Um, because certainly making, making hydrogen and then other liquid fuels out of it is an expensive process. So I don't think it's all doom and gloom. I think that there will be plenty of uh, liquid hydrocarbon fuel around for quite a long time to come yet, as um, politicians start to realise the difficulty um, in, in moving away from it. Um, there are also some good developments in terms of carbon capture and, um, and sequestration, so storing it, basically. And um, I just noticed today that there's some new um, uh, metallic matrices that have been developed that are very good at separating CO2 from exhaust stacks. 
So um, I think, you know, watch this space. We can't meet the uh, 2050 net zero targets without a lot of carbon capture and storage. So, um, you know, this is it's early days yet, and it's important not to pick winners. Um, let technology um, uh, see what it can come up with, basically. And I think, uh, I think there will be some other viable solutions. And ultimately, I guess, without straying too deep into politics here, governments across the world are having to grapple with this fact that on the one hand they're trying to get us all into electric vehicles or whatever the green alternative as you say might evolve from whatever technology is announced tomorrow the day after whatever but actually their bigger problem is the fact that if they continue to keep taking chunks of vehicles off the road they'll make very small gains if they don't stop the carbon capture being eroded at the other end and i'm talking about things like deforestation here it's an ultimate balance of all of these things not just targeting road vehicles as the sole problem isn't it well that's right and i mean that's kind of the law of unintended consequences this is the problem um i've been heavily involved in in a lot of the debates um, with the European Commission over the years about the use of biofuels. And everybody rushed to, to, um, to get biofuels out there, and particularly biodiesel. Um, but when they started to explore the actual true life cycle emissions of those fuels and sustainability, they started to realize that there were some problems. And the classic one being palm oil, you know, initially very, very popular. But then when they realized the damage that was being done to uh, to rainforests and uh, being cut down and palm planted, um, then they realize that actually that's not really a viable alternative. And so we, we also see something that's called indirect land use change, where um, you, um, you decide to have a biofuel crop and that displaces um, a normal agricultural crop. And so to get that crop, they then cut down trees and plow up other land. So when you take into account the full life cycle, you find actually that the so-called biofuel didn't save anything, and in fact, actually probably increased emissions. So we, we've got to we've got to um, sort of understand that. So we called it well to wheels in the oil industry, but it is life cycle basically. You're looking at the whole the whole thing, and that includes the production of the batteries, the electric vehicle. Uh, the mining that has to go on. And it will become apparent as time goes on and people research this as to are we actually making any benefits here and, uh, and understanding where the benefits are. And I think that will that will change the direction slightly. It is funny, isn't it? You know, on the one hand, we're all signing up to these carbon capture schemes where for every mile we travel, we plant a tree. And yet every day we lose a whole football field's worth out of the Amazon rainforest. It's got to be looked at on a global scale, as you say, and, and one thing balancing the other. It can't be just a single country tackling this on their own. And uh, uh, that is a problem for people much higher up in life uh, than us sat here, I'm sure. But uh, of course, the other th point to make here is that as a historic vehicle community, we're just not a problem. We count for so little uh, fuel usage and mileage. Uh, the latest statistics showing that the historic vehicle community, and that's not just classic cars, everyone, that's including uh, lorries, uh, commercial vehicles, uh, uh, including buses and passenger vehicles, agricultural vehicles, traction engines, classic motorcycles, all of that kind of stuff, accounts for less than a quarter of a percent, 0.25% of all the total miles travelled on the UK roads. You could wipe all of us out tomorrow, Nigel, couldn't you? And it wouldn't make any difference. 
No, absolutely. So, you know, I think I think we shouldn't be worrying too much. Yes, we've got to keep an eye on the politicians and make sure that they don't do anything stupid, which is, you know, they tend to do whatever they think will get them elected. But um, we just need to be very careful about that. But um, certainly, I think we have a good case for classic vehicles and um, long may it continue. It's well worth keeping our motoring heritage on the road. And uh, by the time this podcast goes out, the FBHVC will have also announced a brand new carbon capture scheme that they have designed and set up for car clubs as well. Uh, not just car clubs as a whole, but individuals in those car clubs to sign up to a scheme whereby you can actually plant trees that will appear in the UK uh, to offset our classic car vehicle uh, our our historic vehicle use so uh if you if you lay awake at night worrying about these things and you want to do something about it that is a brilliant way of contributing uh, and yeah. just making sure that uh, our historic vehicles despite the fact that uh, they have very little usage can do our little part in uh, improving things for the future most definitely and you know we shouldn't co2 is kind of uh, branded as almost as toxic co2 is essential for life and it's all part of the, the whole life cycle and trees play and, and plants play an important part in that and producing oxygen from CO2 and storing the carbon. So, you know, CO2 is not, not, uh, is not bad base case. It's essential to life. We just have to manage the overall levels in the atmosphere more carefully. Absolutely. Um, I'm very conscious we've talked a lot about petrol here, but there may well be owners of diesel historic vehicles listening in as well uh, certainly diesel cherished vehicles uh, what's the future for diesel here because let's be honest diesel has come in for a bit of a hard rap recently it has but um certainly in the um in the heavy duty area um there is you know the viable alternatives are are fairly limited um we've talked about hydrogen and i know daimler and in germany are looking hard uh, hydrogen for uh, for future heavy duty. In talking to their engineers, they've indicated that um, electric vehicles for main haulage are, are not viable. The weight of the batteries, the reduced payload payload and range, um, isn't going to work. Yes, they're they're okay. Electric vehicles are okay for city delivery for them, but um, they're not going to be viable for the main HGV use. So diesel is still going to be around for quite a time. I think there was an announcement today to say that um, um, diesel HGV vehicles would be um, uh, carbon zero by um, 2040. So that's going to be interesting. Um, the diesel engine continues to improve its efficiency, and certainly in the heavy duty area, it's up to just over 50% now, which is which is which is very good. It's a big improvement, and there are still quite a lot of technologies to come. Um, so I think diesel is going to be around for a long time yet. Remember, it also does other things like emergency power generation. Um, most hospitals have backup diesel generator sets. Um, this would all have to be replaced by batteries, uh, and you've got to keep those batteries charged. And how long would they allow the hospital to run? Um, whereas a diesel gen set can be running for weeks on end. So, you know, there are, there are some key areas here where you just can't turn off diesel very easily. Uh, the other thing, of course, is that jet fuel kerosene will also can also be used in diesel vehicles with a with the use of a lubricity additive. So, you know, I think we've um, I think we've got some good alternatives going on for diesel. Um, the government also have just um, started. Well, the Department of Transport just started to talk to us about um, 
um, higher biodiesel blend rates. So clearly they're thinking about actually trying to do something about going beyond the 7% um, um, fatty acid methyl ester that's in the uh, current um, diesel. So we may see some higher levels there in the future. And of course, one of the other big stories in the historic vehicle world at the moment is electric conversions of classic cars in particular. Don't see it so much in motorcycles or obviously commercial vehicles for all the reasons you've just outlined. But uh, in classic cars, there seems to be a bit of a movement of small businesses popping up to uh, convert classic cars to electric. And some of the press are heralding this as the future of classic cars. It will save them from being scrapped and you can drive into London, etc. Uh, a few myths around that. Of course, the ULEZs and LEZs across the country, all historic vehicles are exempt from them anyway. So it makes no difference to their ability to drive into London and other cities. Uh, But also... And I was quoted uh, in the BBC recently uh, for being quite outspoken about this subject. So, uh, you know, in my view, you are damaging heritage if you are converting electric vehicles uh, because you think you're going to be saving the environment. Now, I have to make the distinguishing um, point here between uh, man in shed who wants to do this to his own vehicle because he thinks it's a cool project all up for that that's cool uh, it's just in the same vein of those sorts of people that have sat in sheds and put rover v8s in mgas and jaguar xj6s and stuff all fine if you want to do it yourself as a project at home because it's the thing you want to do but as an enforced thing on the classic vehicle world I, th- I react quite badly to it because, in my view, damaging heritage and actually ultimately for the environment, not making any gains whatsoever. We're not a problem in the first place. And actually, all you're doing is using up more resources in the components you're using uh, to under- undertake the conversion. Absolutely. I think this is absolutely sacrilege doing this. Um, the whole heart and soul of a, of a classic vehicle is the engine. And so to take that out and replace it with an electric motor, I think, is a criminal act. And, uh, and certainly, yeah, it should be resisted. As you say, OK, um, it's, it's fine if you want to do it as a, as a, a sort of a, as a prod special project, as you indicated. But you don't have to use a classic vehicle if you want to do that. You can do it with a more modern vehicle and have all the benefits of the modern vehicle systems. So I think it's, um, yeah, it's, a, it's a poor show if people start doing it. And in fact, I've just um, answered a question this morning um, from uh, a Jaguar owner um, of a, a 1949 Jaguar that's um, talking about um, um, having it converted to an electric motor because he's worried about running it on E10. And so um, we've been, I uh, hopefully have managed to allay his fears about the work that he needs to make it E10 compatible compared to the cost of making it an electric vehicle. Yes, I'm sure the cost of a few fuel lines, etc., pales into insignificance against the what must be 30, 40k plus just for the batteries alone for some of these conversions that you see on the market. They are hugely expensive. And the yes, worry so- is, of course, that they take classic cars out of the realm of the normal motorist as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've looked at some uh, one of these TV programs where they've been doing some of the conversions, and um, it's not just a matter of putting batteries in an electric motor. The, the actual weight of the batteries and the position of the batteries usually means that the vehicle has to be cut about quite a bit, and generally the um, the chassis strengthened um, to withstand the extra weight, and that means the suspension then has to be improved and the brakes. So it ends up being very little of your original classic vehicle if you're not careful. 
Well, classic cars are very much a part of our hobby, our pastime, what we do for fun. But actually, there's a more serious element to their existence, and that is the preservation of our transport heritage. Not just transport heritage, but the heritage of and the history of our own society and the development of people's freedom to move around is locked up in those cars that we lavish our spare time and spare money on. There is a serious element to preserving them for the future. And as I think uh, the BBC quoted me as saying, it's a little bit like trying to explain to your kids what seeing Led Zeppelin was like if you're just playing them one-fingered on a Casio keyboard. You're just not getting the same effect. So uh, it's important that we uh, we keep historic vehicles on the road, uh, but in a sustainable way, in a environmentally conscious way. And I hope through this interview that we have debunked some of the myths that have been spread about E10 and our future uh, for historic vehicles on the roads of the UK. And of course, all the information you can need really is on the fbhvc website more info being added all the time and as member clubs you are free to use this stuff of course uh, you can find it all at fbhvc.co.uk forward slash fuels uh, read the news pages on there as well about all of the other elements of legislation that the federation are involved in in fighting for the right of historic vehicle owners to use their cars unhindered on the uk's roads and nigel uh, it's going to be interesting years ahead but I somehow feel safer uh, in my garage uh, this evening knowing that you're looking after our fuels as part of the FBHVC. So uh, thank you for all the work that you do on behalf of the entire historic vehicle movement. Absolutely my pleasure. I hope everybody's found it very useful. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.